Now, in addition to welcoming those of you in the audience today, I'll remind you that there are history enthusiasts all over the world who watch and listen to the recordings of our Banner Lecture programs online, and that these programs are only possible because of the generous support of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Virginia Historical Society members. And so if you enjoy these programs and are not a member, please consider supporting us by joining the Virginia Historical Society today. It's easy to do at our website at www.vahistorical.org. And now for today's program. When Abraham Lincoln spoke so memorably at Gettysburg about a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, he was looking more toward a hoped-for future rather than accurately describing the American past. The slave system before the Civil War was deeply rooted, protected by the Constitution, and spread rapidly. Even those Americans who disliked it felt powerless to do anything about slavery in the states where it already existed. They would instead try to stop its expansion. Without doubt, Lincoln abhorred slavery and looked forward to its ultimate extinction, yet he hardly expected anything to happen soon. And he repeatedly vowed that he would never interfere with slavery in the slave states. During his first inaugural address, delivered March 4, 1861, Lincoln even agreed to accept a constitutional amendment that would have barred Congress from legislating against slavery. Had it been ratified by the states, this other 13th Amendment would have been the polar opposite to the actual 13th Amendment enacted four years and one war later. Daniel W. Cross has written five books about the North-South sectional crisis that led to the Civil War. Among them are Reluctant Confederates, Upper South Unionists in the Secession Crisis, which looked at three key Upper South states, North Carolina, Tennessee, and our own Virginia, where most white people opposed secession but ended up fighting on the Confederate side. His newest book, Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery, The Other 13th Amendment and the Struggle to Save the Union, will be the focus of his remarks today. Dan made over a dozen contributions between 2011 and 2014 to the very popular New York Times blog Disunion, an online collection of essays marking the 150th anniversary of the Civil War. He holds a doctorate from Yale University and taught for many years at the College of New Jersey, where he chaired the history department for nine years. So it's my pleasure today, and I hope you'll give a warm welcome to Dan Crofts. Well, thank you, um, Graham Dozier, for inviting me here. And thank you, Andy Talkov, for that kind introduction. It's a particular privilege to be back here speaking at the Virginia Historical Society. Um, anytime I visit Richmond, it throws me into a reflective mood. Um, as Andy mentioned, my special interest is the North-South sectional conflict that led to the Civil War. That interest first led me here long ago in 1974. Uh, eventually, I finished a book that had a good deal to say about Virginia history on the eve of the war. And then I came back repeatedly in the late 1980s and early 1990s to take advantage of rich sources here about Southampton County, uh, especially two extensive diaries that had recently been unearthed uh, by House and Cole. Uh, my weeks and months here were brightened by your ever so helpful and well-informed staff, uh, Francis Pollard, uh, Lee Shepard, Nelson Lankford, Charlie Bryan, and many others. Uh, historians may write alone, but we stand on the shoulders of those who have helped us. The books that ultimately resulted from my prowling in the archives here uh, enabled this Yankee carpetbagger uh, to show that he knew something about the South. 
So here's what I'm going to talk about today. I'll focus on the fateful series of events in late 1860 and early 1861 when a presidential election triggered a grave crisis and before long a civil war. Let us hope that this history never repeats itself. But let us remember that any durable electoral system has attributes that we dare not take for granted. A durable electoral system presupposes some degree of shared values. It presupposes that political parties be prepared to govern. It presupposes that neither party nominate a man on horseback or an impulsive demagogue, someone who might erode constitutional rights <laughs> or pervert the system for private financial advantage in the style of Vladimir Putin. It presupposes that you accept the legitimacy of your opponents and that you accept the verdict of the voters. Above all, a durable electoral system presupposes that bullets never supplant ballots. I'll organize my talk today with four main topics. Got things clipped together here, so let's unclip. First, Abraham Lincoln and the Republican Party. I'll try to answer several key questions. What did Lincoln and the Republicans stand for in 1860, and what did they hope to do? Did they intend to abolish Southern slavery, or was the Republican anti-slavery program mostly wishful thinking about the distant future? Second, the slaveholding South. Here I'll ask, why the South flew off the rails after Lincoln's election? Was the slave system imperiled? Or did white Southerners overreact and thereby transform a distant danger into a deadly and immediate threat? Third, we'll talk about the book I've just written. <laughs> it suggests that we need to revisit carefully the actual situation at the time. We need to know how political leaders and ordinary people, both North and South, expected events to unfold. As we shall see, our supposed advantage of hindsight can mislead us and make it harder for us to see what people at the time thought was happening. And fourth, I'll end with some thoughts about the tension between myth and history. Why does a mythic version of history tend to dominate our historical memory? Why do we often seem to prefer feel-good folklore to demonstrable facts? What can we learn about American history more broadly from taking a fresh look at the crisis that led to the Civil War? So first, let's start with Abraham Lincoln. In November 1863, when he spoke so memorably at Gettysburg about a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal, Lincoln was looking toward a hoped-for future rather than accurately describing the American past. A growing shelf of modern scholarship challenges Lincoln's understanding of history. Yes, some of the founding fathers wanted to curb or restrict slave owning, but according to historian George Van Cleve, they had a far stronger desire to create a federal union that possessed sufficient power to govern a continent. Lincoln thought the founders expected slavery to disappear, but the Constitution, in fact, gave slavery new protections. It established what Van Cleve calls a slaveholders' union. It made the South an equal partner as the United States first took shape. Historian David Waldstreicher agrees. Everyone who participated in writing the Constitution at Philadelphia in 1787 knew that it had to mollify slaveholders. The framers omitted the word slave from the Constitution to shield national hypocrisy and embarrassment, but they crafted numerous weasel-worded safeguards for slavery. On balance, Waldstreicher concludes, the Constitution was deliberately ambiguous but operationally pro-slavery. Lincoln lived in a country where the slave system was deeply rooted. 
It had spread rapidly in his lifetime across the lower Mississippi Valley. He didn't like it and thinking about it made him miserable. He convinced himself that the founding fathers really had wanted something better. But Lincoln and most other anti-slavery Northerners also prized the union with slaveholders and they wanted it preserved. He was committed to values that could not logically be reconciled, the great historian David Potter once wrote. Lincoln and the Republican Party's mainstream moderates hoped slavery eventually would disappear, but they had no blueprint to get from here to there. They read the Constitution to mean that they had no power to touch slavery in the states where it already existed. Instead, they counted on white Southerners to realize at some point in the future that free labor would create a more prosperous and productive society than slave labor. Republicans had no plan to fight a war that would revolutionize Southern society. So what did Lincoln actually propose to do? He and his Republican friends believed the South wielded too much power in the Union. The Republican Party coalesced in the 1850s to challenge what they called the slave power. Republicans vowed to enable the free white men of the North to gain the political clout to which their numbers entitled them. That meant evicting the Southern-dominated Democratic Party from its stranglehold on national office. Once in power, Republicans promised they would stop the spread of slavery to the territories. What they called free soil would become national policy. Some Republicans wanted to do more. White Northerners who considered slavery a moral problem demanded a more aggressive plan to denationalize it. Republicans such as Ohio Congressman Joshua Giddings said the federal government should do nothing to uphold or sustain the slave system. They called for more than territorial restriction. Giddings and his allies also wanted to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia, to restrict or eliminate the interstate slave trade, to prevent additional slave states from entering the Union, and to repeal the Fugitive Slave Act, a law that made it easier to recapture slaves that had escaped to the North. The rallying cry for hardline Republicans like Giddings was Freedom National. But the stance assumed by the Republican Party in its victorious 1860 campaign gave short shrift to Freedom National absolutists. Mainstream Republican leaders led by Lincoln emphasized that they posed no threat to slavery in the states. They focused narrowly on the territories and on the long run hope that white Southerners might reconsider their addiction to forced labor. Had Republicans embraced the hardline plan to denationalize slavery, Lincoln suspected, the party would lose the North's swing voters. If Republicans demanded repeal of the Fugitive Slave Act, Lincoln feared, it might wreck the party. I confess, I hate to see the poor creatures hunted down and caught and carried back to their stripes and unrewarded toils, he once told a friend, but I bite my lip and keep quiet. Republican managers nevertheless needed the votes of white Northerners who saw slavery as a moral problem. Party promoters endlessly promised their enlightened moral minority that territorial containment was the first step on the road to abolition, but they never identified the second step. Let's turn now to my next topic, the South on the eve of the war. You might think, in light of what I've just said, that Southern slaveholders had little to worry about. If they faced any danger at all, it was in the distant future. That indeed is pretty much the way I see it. But the Republican Party's anti-slavery stance offended the white South and got its backup. This disagreement then spiraled dangerously out of control. Pro-slavery absolutists, most of whom were militant Southern Democrats, blasted the Republican Party as a deadly menace that would deny the South access to the territories and then attack slavery in the states where it existed. Throughout the 1860 presidential campaign, Southern alarmists charged repeatedly that Republicans were abolitionists in disguise who plotted to unleash slave rebels and murder white women and children. It became a staple of the 1860 campaign in the South 
that Republicans were allies of the abolitionist John Brown. There we go. Um, who led an abortive uprising at Harpers Ferry, Virginia in October 1859. At work here in part was the combative over the top quality of Southern political give and take. Rival partisans in the South regularly sought to identify threats to Southern rights. They smeared their opponents for displaying insufficient zeal in blocking such threats or for insidiously collaborating with the South's enemies. It became standard procedure for political orators to warn that the South was menaced by abolitionism. These accusations likely hit home because white Southerners depended upon a system of forced labor, even while they pretended that black slaves were happy and content. Endless affirmations that slavery was a positive good for everyone involved never quite banished the fear that ferocious rebels might lurk behind inscrutable black masks. White Southerners were predisposed to be suspicious. Lincoln tried to quiet the White South's hysteria. He explicitly condemned John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry and insisted that John Brown was no Republican. Lincoln did his best to show that Republicans were not abolitionists, and he dismissed the likelihood of slave insurrections. His whole famed Cooper Union speech in New York City in early 1860 was strictly designed to show that Republicans were good constitutional conservatives, uh, not abolitionists. But Lincoln's reassurances never found an audience in the White South. Lincoln won the 1860 presidential election because he carried every free state except for a divided electoral vote in New Jersey. So he compiled a clear majority in the electoral college. That's your uh, little um, you know, graph up here. Uh, Lincoln uh, has an undoubted 59% majority of the electoral vote. Um, uh, he also amassed far more popular votes than any of the other three candidates. And you can see that in this uh, pie graph over here. Uh, Lincoln clearly has more votes than anybody else. Um, but his plurality victory only gained 40% of the nationwide popular vote. He got no electoral votes and hardly any popular votes in the South. He was not even on the ballot in many Southern states. Few among Lincoln's supporters were outright abolitionists. As we have seen, an articulate ideological minority of Republicans did consider slavery a moral problem, but mainstream Republican moderates always said that slavery was beyond their reach. Lincoln's victory shocked the South. Throughout the summer and fall, Southern political orators had warned of catastrophe if Republicans won at the ballot box. A symbolic humiliation added to Southern distress. The South contended for a supposed constitutional right, the right to take slaves to the territories. Hardly any slave owners wished to exercise that right, but it was endlessly reiterated, closing off the territories to slavery would deny what they called Southern equality in the Union and put the country on the high road toward abolition. So a spasm of panic and indignant outrage swept the South especially the Deep South, during the weeks after Lincoln's election. This was the only time in American history when the losers in a presidential election refused to accept the verdict of the voters. Southern secessionists instead took the fateful step of trying to break up the Union and establish an independent country. Supposedly responsible Southern leaders fueled the uproar that rabid Deep South extremists fanned into a raging fire. George's Howell Cobb, for example, probably wielded greater power than any other Southerner. He was the U.S. Secretary of the Treasury and widely considered the power behind the throne in President James Buchanan's cabinet. Cobb recklessly exaggerated the danger facing the South. He warned in December 1860 that Republicans were committed to immediate and unconditional abolition in every state and that Lincoln planned to build up a party in the South to
to promote insidious warfare upon our family firesides. Cobb certainly knew better, but his words intensified the panic among many ordinary white Southerners. He and other key Southern leaders apparently decided they could do nothing to deflect the mob mentality. They chose instead to amplify it. And here are several of the folks involved. Robert Toombs, the US Senator from Georgia, Judah Benjamin, the US Senator from Louisiana, and Jefferson Davis, the US Senator from Mississippi. Um, Toombs, Benjamin, and Davis were sometimes called the triumvirate, the three most powerful members of the US Senate. Before the election, Republicans assumed that secession threats were a harmless charade, a mixture of bravado and posturing. After the election, most Republicans initially refused to take seriously an outburst based upon what they considered ludicrous and seemingly deliberate misconceptions. Some Republicans did fear that secession posed a grave crisis, but they faced an uphill struggle when they tried to offer concessions. Republicans, for the most part, saw the crisis as artificial. They thought it had been whipped up by the South and only could be resolved when the South climbed off its high horse. So let me shift now to my third topic, a glimpse of the book I've recently finished. It is called Lincoln and the Politics of Slavery, the Other 13th Amendment and the Struggle to Save the Union. Make sure you, you catch that qualifying adjective, the other 13th Amendment. This is not a book about the real 13th Amendment enacted in 1865 that abolished slavery, the one that was central to Steven Spielberg's film Lincoln, which many of you probably watched a few years ago. Instead, this is a book about an entirely different amendment, indeed its polar opposite, that was proposed four years earlier Hindsight obscures the would-be 1861 amendment. I need to emphasize here, this never did become part of the Constitution, but it did pass both houses of Congress by two-thirds majorities uh, in the very nick of time. The session of Congress was about to expire, uh, and indeed the Senate acted about five in the morning, just uh, in the morning before Lincoln's inauguration. Uh, so it was ready to go out to the states. The other 13th Amendment was the handiwork of Thomas Corwin and William Henry Seward, two veteran Republicans who masterminded its passage in the House and Senate the week before Lincoln's inauguration. Corwin, an Ohio congressman, had been a fixture in national politics for 30 years. Seward, a US senator from New York, had expected the Republican presidential nomination in 1860 but it got away from him. Corwin and Seward were assisted by Charles Francis Adams, a Massachusetts congressman who was the son and grandson of two US presidents and whose support for this amendment very much protected its moderate Republican sponsors uh, from any claim that they were diverging from party or anti-slavery orthodoxy. Uh, Charles Francis Adams had been the vice presidential candidate of the Free Soil Party uh, back in 1848. Let me just show you these gentlemen again. Um, unlike most Republicans, Corwin and Seward and Adams feared that Southern secession created an imminent peril of war and an urgent need to conciliate pro-Union white Southerners. They offered to make explicit in the Constitution what most Americans assumed already was implicit there. And they persuaded Lincoln to get behind their amendment. Abraham Lincoln's first inaugural address on March 4, 1861, denied that he or the Republican Party intended to interfere with the institution of slavery in the states where it exists. He then announced that he could accept the constitutional amendment which two-thirds majorities of both houses of Congress had just approved. Behind the scenes, Lincoln had quietly told his political allies in Congress that he wanted the amendment to pass. 
It specified that Congress had no power to interfere with slavery in the states where it already existed. The man destined to become the great emancipator thus sounded an entirely different note as he took office. He pleaded with white Southerners to stop and think and reconsider and stay in the Union. By the time Lincoln offered these reassurances, seven states in the Lower South had seceded from the Union and had begun to organize a separate government, the Confederate States of America. But eight, state, eight slave states, home to two-thirds of white Southerners, remained uneasily within the Union, and no shots had yet been exchanged. Lincoln hoped to contain and ultimately to reverse the secession movement. Above all, he hoped to preserve the peace. We are not enemies but friends, he insisted. We must not be enemies. At the moment Lincoln was inaugurated, Virginia was still in the Union. By a decisive two-to-one margin, its voters just a month before had rejected secession. Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and Jeb Stuart were not fighting in a war because no war was taking place. Jubal Early was a delegate to the Virginia Convention right here in Richmond, where he repeatedly warned against following the reckless lead of the Deep South. We know, of course, that Lincoln proved unable to prevent war. Six weeks after his inauguration, Southern Confederates opened fire on Fort Sumter in the harbor of Charleston, South Carolina. Lincoln responded by calling for troops. Rival waves of patriotic fervor swept both the North and the South. In the North, many Democrats joined hands with Republicans to uphold the flag and restore the Union. Stephen A. Douglas, Lincoln's longtime Illinois rival, announced that every man must be for the United States or against it. There can be no neutrals in this war, only patriots or traitors. In the South, the new Confederate nation suddenly became far more formidable. Most white Southerners decided to fight for independence. Four additional slave states, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, and Arkansas sided with the Deep South and doubled the new nation's military manpower. Many Virginians who thought secession was a terrible idea in February decided in April that the question had changed entirely. The new question was, which side are you on in a war? Both sides mobilized vast armies and both stumbled into a war that proved more bloody and protracted than anyone could have imagined when it first started. In my judgment, secession was the most calamitous example of bad judgment in all of American history. It was designed to counteract a supposed threat to slavery, even though Lincoln and his fellow Republicans vowed that they would not touch slavery where it already existed. But when Southern secessionists fractured the Union and started a war, they removed their states from the protection of the Constitution. They also killed the effort to amend the Constitution so as to make slaveholders feel more secure. Instead, growing numbers of white Northerners during wartime started demanding an end to slavery, the apparent taproot of the rebellion. So a war originally waged to restore what was called the old Union as it was, gradually was transformed into a war to create a new union in which slavery had no place. After Lincoln issued his preliminary emancipa emancipation proclamation, uh, just exactly, someone was pointing out at lunch before we came down here, uh, that was September 22nd, 154 years uh, to the day, before right now. Um, after he had issued this, his secretary of the treasury, Salmon P. Chase, marveled at the greatest collective insanity the world had ever seen. Had the slaveholders stayed in the Union, Chase reflected, they might have kept slavery for many years to come. No party or public feeling in the North could have touched them, but instead they had madly placed slavery in the very path of destruction. In the end, secession destroyed slavery. The actual 13th Amendment enacted in 1865 
four years and one war later, specified exactly the opposite of the original version. The two 13th Amendments, the one that did not become part of the Constitution in 1861, and the one that did in 1865, bookend the four most critical years in American history. So my book tackles an important subject that has long been hidden in plain sight. It cuts against the grain of what we think we know about the Civil War era. I turn now to my fourth and final topic, what we can learn about American history more broadly by taking a fresh look at the crisis that led to the Civil War. There's a tension between history as it actually unfolded and history as it is remembered. Americans tend to read back into history what we would like to find there, a nation conceived in liberty where slavery never really belonged, a civil rights movement in the 1950s and 60s that decisively ended racial discrimination and made American practices align with American ideals. By sugarcoating a more complex and troubling reality, we trivialize the bravery and dedication of those who did challenge the status quo. A history that we can feel good about often substitutes fancy for fact. Let's take a look here at the Underground Railroad. Um, um, the story of the Underground Railroad is a familiar one. Um, squadrons of slaves riding the Underground Railroad to freedom as they outwitted their pursuers and often were aided by public-spirited white Northerners. Uh, gobs and gobs of secret routes and uh, safe houses and heaven knows what uh, to allow heaven knows how many slaves to escape the South. Uh, the more you hear about the Underground Railroad, the more you think that the slave system must, must have been in a state of near collapse uh, with all these slaves uh, able to get away. Um, no. Um, the Underground Railroad acquired mythical proportions among white Northerners in the late 19th century. Uh, but there are big problems with the myth. Um, first of all, uh, it's much exaggerated. Um, the person, uh, historian Eric Foner, who wrote the most recent book on the subject, estimated that somewhere between perhaps 1,000 and 5,000 slaves a year might have been able to escape. Uh, my own view is that um, it's probably closer to the lower figure. So let's say perhaps 2,000 slaves a year uh, are able to escape. Um, uh, so, so this is, um, in, in reality, uh, not a very large number of escapees. Um, the myth of the Underground Railroad, uh, which emphasizes this wonderful uh, uh, interracial cooperation, uh, also conceals the fact that for such few blacks as were able to escape, uh, most of this involved um, blacks helping other blacks aided by a very small handful uh, of, of white abolitionists, uh, often members of the Society of Friends or Quakers. Um, but it was far from being any kind of systematized operation for the most part. Uh, it was very much uh, sort of by chance and spur of the moment. Another problem with the myth of the Underground Railroad, uh, and there's now a board game you can play, um, it, such as it was, it was mostly along that one part of the border between the slave and free states where you could just cross a line, so to speak, that is the border between Delaware and Maryland and Pennsylvania. It's not surprising that some of the most uh, memorable uh, people who did escape from slavery uh, crossed from Maryland or Delaware. Uh, Frederick Douglass was from the eastern shore of Maryland. Uh, Harriet Tubman's uh, famed exploits are mostly in Delaware. These are the two, if you will, slave states where the slave system was least solid uh, and where many blacks were free. Uh, but for the overwhelming majority of American slaves, uh, running away uh, simply wasn't an option. Um, it's, um, 
uh, it's, I mean, the, the, the mathematics are that there were 60% of American slaves held in the Lower South, the states of the Deep South. One of the books I often taught with, in fact, regularly taught with for most of my teaching career uh, was Solomon Northup's wonderful narrative uh, of his hard life called 12 Years a Slave, uh, where a free black man who was kidnapped from the North and held as a slave for 12 years in Louisiana miraculously was redeemed. He did not escape. Uh, and he writes in that book that escape was impossible. He thought about it every day, and there was no way out. And mind you, this was a man, unlike other slaves, who if he could somehow have uh, you know, made his presence known, the law was on his side. He had been kidnapped. He was a free man. He was also literate. He also understood where the North was. He'd been there. He'd grown up there. Uh, he could not escape. Uh, the idea that you could frequently uh, expect to uh, escape from slavery simply is what I tend to think of as a, a, a feel-good myth that kind of borders on the fiction. Uh, now, there have been efforts. Uh, there's a television series going on right now. I believe it's continuing. Uh, there's a new novel uh, uh, by Colson Whitehead that's getting a tremendous amount of coverage. I think it's fair to say that these, uh, you know, this film and the novel, uh, they do give proper emphasis to the far higher degree of violence, uh, danger, and unpredictability for those few slaves who were able to run away, uh, and the fact that often uh, they were not able to run away. Um, but I think that uh, even so, we're still talking about the Underground Railroad and we're talking about maybe 2,000 slaves a year uh, being able to escape from slavery. Uh, there were 4 million slaves in the United States in 1860. Those are not good odds. Um, instead, um, we need to take into account uh, that slavery was once considered normal and taken for granted. We thereby failed to see the country as it was. Um, our image uh, prevents us from seeing a slave system that held, held most slaves without any hope of escape. Um, here is an image that uh, uh, I think is important. I, I happened to encounter the Equal Justice Initiative down in Montgomery, Alabama uh, uh, just uh, a year ago. Uh, this is a remarkable organization uh, headed by Brian Stevenson, uh, whose book some of you may have read. It's an autobiography called Just Mercy. And the Equal Justice Initiative is his brainchild. 20 years ago, he went down into the, uh, to the dark heart of Alabama, uh, where uh, many, many people are being held uh, awaiting uh, execution. Uh, he's an attorney, and he assembled a staff of other attorneys, both white and black, to try to revisit some of these cases. Uh, and he has found a distressing number of instances where innocent people uh, are being held uh, awaiting execution. Uh, so that's one thing the Equal Justice Initiative does. Another thing it does is to try to revisit what I would call historical memory. Uh, so they have um, uh, recently, a couple years ago, enacted or erected this, uh, this uh, marker down in the center of Montgomery, uh, something quite different from all the Confederate markers in Montgomery, uh, but calling attention to something that we better not overlook. Um, upwards of 100,000 people a year uh, were sold and bought in the South. Um, in other words, I'm guessing your chances of being bought and sold uh, were 50 or more times more likely uh, than that you would have a chance to run away uh, as a fugitive slave. Uh, so this hard and unpleasant reality uh, of the slave trade is, I'm afraid, uh, something that we need to know more about. Um, uh, and it connects to where we are here today. Uh, slave trading was a big business in Richmond, uh, one of the biggest. And the slave traders in Richmond were desperate to get Virginia to side with the Deep South because they were afraid of being cut off from their market. And they did everything they could in the early spring of 1861 to promote secession and to undermine the Unionists in the state who were trying to hold Virginia in the Union. We also tend to overlook 
the ugly reality that African-Americans living in the free states of the North before the Civil War were shamefully excluded from economic or educational opportunities and from public life, and that most Republican leaders were not about to confront the racial prejudices of their white supporters. So the other 13th Amendment featured in my book runs contrary to uplifting national mythology. 21st century American sensibilities obscure the situation a century and a half ago. So too do those who exalt Abraham Lincoln and assume that he must have figured it all out in advance. It makes no sense to, at least many of us in the North, uh, that professedly anti-slavery Republicans, including Lincoln, all could vouch before the war that they had neither the power nor the intention of st touching slavery in the states where it already existed. We assume they must have been kidding, but we assume wrongly. We now honor Lincoln, the great emancipator, but during the troubled months following his election as president, Lost my place. Um, I'm sorry. He was totally preoccupied by other matters. He faced the gravest political crisis ever to confront a new president, and he could not have spared a moment to think about the long-run future of slavery or the many indignities and hardships suffered by American slaves. That changed, and Lincoln played a large role in advancing the change. The war forced the issue of slavery from the margins to the center of attention. It made slavery vulnerable in ways that never could have happened in peacetime. Quite suddenly, those white Americans who knew that slavery sabotaged American ideals were in a position to start doing something about it. And they had increasing motive to do so because black Americans were eager to support the Union cause and fight in the Union army. The arithmetic of the situation was clear. Slaves liberated from Confederate captivity could be transformed into assets that enhanced the Union war effort. Lincoln spelled this out to disgruntled Northern whites who complained about emancipation. To whatever extent the Negroes should cease helping the enemy, he reasoned, to that extent it weakens the enemy in his resistance to you. And, Whatever Negroes can be got to do as soldiers, Lincoln added, leaves just so much less for white soldiers to do in saving the Union. Abraham Lincoln should remind us that moral complexity lies at the heart of the American experience. His career highlights tensions for which there were no easy answers. He weighed between conscience and law, but he said that the fugitive slave law must be obeyed. He knew that black people in America were treated unfairly, that he dared not come out squarely for equal rights. He always had been appalled by disorder and violence and bloodshed, but as president, he commanded enormous armies and hoped that the ends would justify the terrible means. Lincoln's two towering achievements, restoring the Union and ending slavery, made it possible to build a new nation that did more closely reflect the ideals of the Founding Fathers. The Constitution was amended three times between 1865 and 1870 to abolish slavery, to provide an expansive new definition of citizenship, to insist that states must treat all citizens equally, and to specify that voting rights could not be denied by the federal government or a state government on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. But the new Constitution, to make a long story short, was shelved for the next 100 years. Here I come back again to another of the memorial markers that the Equal Justice Initiative uh, has erected in Alabama, uh, calling attention to the horrible but unavoidable, or it better, better not be unavoidable fact, that 4,000 Americans at locations here and there, mostly in the South, were murdered uh, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. That's more people than died in the Twin Towers on 9-11. Uh, terrorism did not begin in the United States uh, on 9-11.
During the long Jim Crow era, the Supreme Court twisted the three post-war constitutional amendments into irrelevance. Racial stigmas, the perverted stepchild of slavery, acquired new life, and certainly not just in the South. The nullification of the new Constitution was a national failing and not just a Southern one. And we are still far from repairing the damage. In state after state today, just to take one example, voting rights are being insidiously eroded under the pretext of preventing non-existent voter fraud. An honest assessment of America's bittersweet history obligates us to set aside many cherished myths. The promise of equality has never been self-fulfilling. The struggle to achieve equality continues, but it often ends in heartbreak and frustration. The arc of history does not necessarily bend the right way. Lincoln's salute to a nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal eloquently defines our aspirations. We ought not imagine, however, that his words actually squared with historical reality. And it would be naive to think that our current reality measures up to Lincoln's standard. Now it's time for your questions and comments. I think there's microphones in both aisles. Uh, so who would like to ask a question? Um, I, be I believe you said that 60% of the slaves were in the slave states of the South. The Deep South. Oh. Uh, oh. I, I was making a distinction there between the Upper South, including Virginia here, uh, and the Lower South. The secession movement um, uh, starts uh, down in the most enslaved part of the South, where two well, 60% of slaves were held. But weren't uh, there some slave states in the North after 1800? A few northern states had vestigial amounts of slavery, but were gradually abolishing it. Uh, the last one was New Jersey, uh, the state where I taught at a college for many years. Uh, but realistically, uh, there's no slavery in the North after the early 19th century. There are a, a tiny scattered handful of individuals uh, who are growing up having to achieve a, a certain age to, uh, uh, to be considered free. Uh, but basically, slavery starts at the Maryland and Delaware line and goes south from there. But Maryland and Delaware were the, the areas of the South where the slave system was least uh, uh, persistent, if you will. There were tendencies in Maryland and Delaware uh, somewhat like what had occurred a couple decades before in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. But Frederick Douglass was treated pretty badly in Maryland. Frederick Douglass was indeed treated pretty badly in Maryland. And we're all glad that he escaped. And don't get me to be saying that nobody escaped. A few did. But I emphasize how few the number was and proportionately how enormous this Underground Railroad uh, impression is. Uh, and what I've tried to do here today is suggest that we ought to be paying more attention to uh, the so many more slaves who were being sold and bought in the South with no hope of escape. After the uh, other 13th Amendment was passed by two thirds votes in both houses of Congress, was it sent to the states for ratification? And if so, what happened? It was indeed sent to the states for ratification, uh, but things were happening pretty quickly. Uh, the war starts six weeks later, in the middle of April. Uh, and at that point, only Kentucky uh, had ratified. Uh, in the next year, um, five, uh, five other states uh, ratified the amendment, but. Uh, basically, uh, it was uh, irrelevant once the war started. The whole logic of the amendment was to try to prevent the war. Uh, and even though um, Kentucky ratified it, Maryland ratified it, uh, they were eager, uh, Maryland especially in early 62, to make a statement about how, hey, we don't want this to become anything other than a war that we signed up for, a war to restore the old union as it was. Uh, but. 
but the, the whole logic of voluntarily persuading uh, white Southerners to come back to the Union, which is what this other 13th Amendment was about, uh, was pretty much uh, kaput uh, after, the, uh, uh, after the war started in April 1861. Uh, after the war started, <clears throat> uh, how many slaves uh, ran away then? Obviously, the war makes it possible for many slaves who'd never had the chance before to run away. Um, it's a significant number, uh, including, of course, many who end up volunteering for the Union Army. But when the war ends at Appomattox in 1865, the great majority of Southern slaves are still held as slaves, uh, even though in areas where the Union Army had come through, it was feasible, and often the reality was that slaves uh, uh, followed the Union Army uh, and escaped from their owners. Uh, and despite the widespread incursions into the south of the Union Army, most slaves were still slaves when the war ended in 1865. That's one reason that Lincoln was eager, uh, this is getting to the very end of his life, to get the actual real 13th Amendment passed so that emancipation isn't simply on what he feared was the rather flimsy foundation of a wartime exercise of the powers of the commander-in-chief in wartime, but to get it into the Constitution. Um, and uh, this went down very hard in states like Kentucky. You know, Kentucky had been a Union slave state, uh, and many slaveholders in Kentucky uh, were absolutely furious uh, when the war to restore the old Union uh, became a war for freedom. Uh, and you end up with this anomaly of Kentucky in which undoubtedly when the war started, a majority of Southern whites living in Kentucky were pro-Union to a situation where if you go to Kentucky today, the great majority of the uh, memorials in the courthouses are Confederate memorials uh, and most prominent among them uh, in Jefferson Davis' hometown is a huge obelisk, 350 feet high. Uh, it's been said that Kentucky uh, didn't join the Confederacy till after the war ended. <laughs> I wish I could figure out how to articulate my question better. Let me apologize in advance. But besides restoration of the Union, I can't imagine that people really cared that much about slaves. Wasn't it more the case that people were concerned about economics and um, the opportunity to keep the mills in New England going and uh, you know all the wealth that enslaved people's labor represented? No, that's a, that's a very good question. Um, um, I stand with uh, uh, my friend, the, the historian Ed Ayers, who until recently, uh, as you probably know, was president here of the University of Richmond, who wrote that the most, what I consider the most powerful uh, single book on the origins of the Civil War. Uh, its title is The Presence of Mine Enemies. I'm sure uh, Ed has been here in one of these lectures to talk about it. Um, and in that, uh, Ayers questions whether a war that began as a fight to maintain the Union with strong protections for slavery ought to be seen as inherently anti-slavery from the beginning. He doesn't think so. I don't think so either. But both he and I would recognize that there was a minority of Southern whites who did see slavery as a moral problem, and that you might say circumstances broke their way. That is, um, once you're fighting a war here and needing everybody to kind of pitch in in what was proving to be a far more uh, a bloody and open-endedly bloody with, bloody with no end in sight operation, then the logic of emancipation begins to come front and center. Uh, the preliminary Emancipation Proclamation was announced by Abraham Lincoln on today, September 22, 1862. That's a year and a half after the war starts. And it's after the war appeared to be a totally inconclusive, ghastly spectacle McClellan had just come up the peninsula and failed miserably outside of Richmond, and nobody knew where this thing was going. Uh, and it was at that juncture that Lincoln and a significant number of other white Americans 
who might not have fully believed in equal rights, most of them did not, um, said, we need the help of black people to win this war. Uh, and if we are asking them to help fight this war, uh, it can't be a war to restore the old union as it was. It has to be a war for freedom. Uh, so you get uh, an intersection of circumstances in which a far larger number of white northerners than would have been the case before the war are willing to support uh, a war for emancipation and to recognize that that had to be a union war aim, even though uh, Ayers and I would say it certainly was not a union war aim when the war started. Excuse me. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, would you ever have said at any point that Abraham Lincoln was a racist, and uh, because that's bannered about here in Virginia, I mean, we all want to believe that he was a racist. But <laughs> after after uh, he met Frederick Douglass in the White House, did could that have changed any on his part? The evidence is overwhelming that that Lincoln um, shared, in many respects. Uh, the views and outlook of his fellow whites in Illinois, uh, and certainly before the war, uh, was not somebody who believed in equal rights for black people or their equal worth. Uh, the evidence is also substantial that during wartime, uh, Lincoln did a considerable, uh, you might say, rethink. Uh, and as you just suggested, there were these now famous instances where he reaches out to Frederick Douglass uh, and at least according to the way Douglas remembered it, uh, treated him very cordially and, and uh, didn't give him the kind of, uh, didn't give Douglas the kind of uh, awkward feeling that he often felt uh, when he met uh, important white people that he hadn't met before. Uh, so Lincoln, I would say, is somebody whose, whose racial views are evolving. I associate myself very much with Eric Foner whose splendid book called The Fiery Trial uh, takes Lincoln as a kind of work in progress whose views on questions of race, race and slavery are evolving over time and who are very different at the end of the war uh, than they were when the war began. At the same time, I distance myself from those historians, and there are some, uh, who say that Lincoln, even before the war, and for that matter, Lincoln and the Republican Party, uh, were as the Southern secessionists said they were, you know, allies of John Brown that were just itching to get power. And as soon as they got power, uh, they would then start to uh, uh, change everything in the South. Uh, I think that the Southern secessionists were crazed to have said that. And I don't have much sympathy for my fellow historians who give you a, a version of that same point of view. Would you please give a scenario of what would have happened had Lincoln not been assassinated? That's a big question and, a, and an excellent question. I would say this. Um, um, the way it turned out, uh, Lincoln was succeeded in office, as you know, by Andrew Johnson, uh, who had never been a member of the Republican Party, uh, who was a white Southerner with a difference, uh, I once wrote, my first book was called Reluctant Confederates, those folks who had been pro-Union until the fighting started and then became pro-Confederate. Uh, Andrew Johnson was the only U.S. senator from a seceding state uh, who refused to go with the seceding states. Uh, and he becomes a symbol of white Southern Unionism, and that's the reason he was put on the ticket. But... Uh, once Johnson, to everybody's surprise, becomes president after Lincoln's assassination, uh, I think it's fair to say, and here I'm making a long story short, that, that he kind of reverts back to what you might call um, white Southern sensibilities and becomes a huge obstacle uh, to uh, trying to, um, you know, redefine or expand rights uh, in a way that would include African Americans as well as white people. So the Republicans in Congress increasingly realize in 1866 and 7 that Johnson is doing his best to undermine them. Uh, and so the efforts to pass, especially the 14th Amendment of 1866, the one that, uh, that uh, defined uh, citizens, as defined citizenship as anybody born or naturalized in the United States, and specifying 
that any citizen uh, would have uh, the equal protection of the laws. Uh, Johnson did his best to pervert that, to undermine it. Uh, and I do think, to come back to your original question, Lincoln would not have uh, followed the course that Andrew Johnson did. I think Lincoln was, above all, an astute politician uh, who would have maintained uh, what you might call a middling position to hold the Republican Party together. Uh, and uh, what that would have meant, I'm not sure. Um, in some ways, I can make the case that we only got the 14th Amendment because of Johnson's ferocious opposition. Um, um, uh, but that's giving him credit that he doesn't deserve. Um, um, and so I, I do think that uh, things might have been uh, a bit better um, uh, in the long run. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure they would have if Lincoln had remained as president. But it would not have been easy. Uh, you know, the United States, with the war ended, uh, most white Northerners still believed in the concept of federalism, believed that the states should uh, before long have the right to uh, uh, regain control over their affairs. And um, it was never going to be an easy thing to uh, figure out how to do this while also um, protecting the rights of these, these, um, these newly defined citizens uh, who were African-American. In Southampton County, Virginia, the part of the South that I've studied most carefully, uh, it was very hard. Uh, you end up with a... Uh, you know, the key that the Republicans come up with to try to preserve and protect black rights is black voting. Uh, but that creates a totally polarized electorate in which all the black people in Southampton voted one way and all the white people voted the other way. Um, and for a moment, because there was a black majority, uh, that meant they elected a delegate uh, to the state constitutional convention uh, in 1867. Uh, but... Uh, for a long-run successful reconstruction, you somehow needed a situation where, where white allies would be part of the picture. And the way things broke, it was hard for that to happen. So I'm afraid I gave you a long-winded answer to your question, but it doesn't lend itself to an easy, quick one. <laughs>